0: like to welcome you to the second edition of the Surgical Companion series on Cold Steel. As you know, this group of podcasts is meant to be a more conversational format that discusses current events and recent publications in a novel and interesting manner. Our standing members of the Companion are Amir Farouk, Kelly Vogt, Morad Hamid, and myself. Today, we also have the pleasure of wel- welcoming back a friend of the podcast, Rebecca Auer. Our discussion surrounds the superb documentary simply entitled RBG. We hope our comments stimulate respectful and thoughtful conversation across the country.
1: So thanks for joining us, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about RBG, the documentary, and really mostly about what RBG has done for the world and how that intersects with the world of surgery. So just a brief intro to start, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was born in 1933 in Brooklyn, and she died just this past September. She uh, was a tremendous woman who lived an incredible life, both before and after her nomination to the Supreme Court. She grew up in Brooklyn with her mother, Celia, who she often credited to much of her success. She was married to Marty Ginsburg. They had two kids, Jane and James, and Jane was actually born when, before she started law school, which is a very interesting story in and of itself. When you watch the documentary, it's tremendously interesting to talk about her time both at Harvard Law School and uh, at finishing law school in, at Columbia. She uh, had a tremendous career fighting for civil rights and most notably for women's rights, both in and out of the courtroom. In 1993, she was appointed Supreme Court Justice, and she remained on the Supreme Court until her death. A few notable things about that, and they really explored this in the documentary, she was uh, best friends on the bench with Justice Antonin Scalia, who I think is most interesting for being her diametrical opposite in ideology and interpretation of the law. In 2013, she really became a pop media icon, which is an interesting story as well, at least in part because of her multiple dissents and the way in which she went about them. She had a blog written about her at that time, which really started her social media and iconic presence in the world. And really, arguably, she became much more famous for her dissents than her majority opinions. She was uh, one of Forbes magazine's 100 Most Powerful People for eight years straight. She, from a medical perspective, survived colon cancer, but ultimately died of pancreatic cancer earlier this year. We could spend hours talking about her life and what she did not only for americans but for the whole world but we want to focus our conversation today a bit on the intersection between who rbg was and what she did and our world of surgery and so we have great guests to talk here today and i think we should start kind of at the beginning with some of her training there's a great story um, that is in the documentary And it's widely reported that in her early years at Harvard, the dean had all the female law students over to his house for dinner and asked them to explain why they were at the school taking the place of a male. The intent behind this question varies depending on who's telling the story, with most who know this dean explaining that he was the dean who first allowed females to enter the school, but that he had to justify their presence to the board. Nonetheless, it reminds me of an experience I had on the CARMS tour interviewing for surgical residency that to the credit of my medical school, may have actually been the first time I was truly aware of a potential gender divide in surgery. I was sitting in an interview with two males and the elder one, after realizing I did medical school at Western, asked me, and I think in all seriousness, wouldn't Angus McLaughlin, who was a prominent surgical mentor at Western long before my time, be rolling around in his grave knowing that a female was applying to general surgery? I've thought about that moment so many times since, and I think in a lot of ways it was similar to what RBG experienced. Tell me why you deserve this spot. Why, as a woman, do you have a place in this male-dominated world? We ask that question of our potential trainees all the time, but not in a way that so overtly references their gender. And so I thought we could start by asking those of you uh, joining us today, tell me a little bit about what you see or how you see what RBG has done in our surgical community now, and maybe we'll start with you, Chad.
0: Well, I, you know, I agree with your comments. Before we started, there's so much you could talk about with with regard to, to her, and and obviously how how far she's come. The documentary to me is fascinating, just to consider some of these large milestones that she helped shape over the course of her career, and and really, you know, as as I was mentioning it, I I watched that documentary a second time with my three kids, so a 12-year-old girl, a 10-year-old boy, and an 8-year-old girl, and their confusion with a lot of what was being said and what used to exist in terms of challenges, and what still exists, I'm sure, but the historical component of it was shocking to them, and I think we talked for about three hours after and it was remarkable. So, you know, that's an indirect answer to your question. But I, I think the impact that she's had is is almost immeasurable, whether you're talking about medicine, surgery, or just life in general.
1: It's interesting that you say that, because as I was watching, I thought multiple times to myself how privileged I am to be a woman existing today, uh, following in the path that she paved Rebecca, what do you think? Did you have similar thoughts or different ones?
2: Yeah, I think I was definitely struck by um, how overt, you know, many of the examples that were brought up, um, you know, you you can't have the same pay because you're a woman, like just as blunt and overt as that. And in some ways, uh, of course, you know, not being around at that time, I can't imagine what that would be like, but in some ways, it's almost, it's almost easier to fight against that. I guess what I kind of took from it a little bit was, um, I do still think there's gender inequalities. I do th- still think there's, you know, uh, quote, sexism um, in, in our profession and, and many others, but it's much more insidious. And because it isn't so overt and so maimed, I sometimes feel like if I bring it up as a gender issue, all of a sudden I'm the problem because I've called it a gender issue, but nobody else has, even though it's unquestionable that the reason I'm being treated that way must be because I'm a woman, but because no one's said it and I've brought it up, then it's my problem, not society's. And that that's one thing that's very different.
1: Yeah, that's a tremendously interesting point. Amir is the youngest one of us here. What do you see in terms of those uh, less overt gender issues, or I think sometimes called microaggressions?
3: I struggle a lot with how to kind of think about that. You know, I think when you you watch that documentary, it really makes you sit there and think about uh, sort of the the way that the U.S. as a microcosm is sort of a, a little example for the world in terms of like the way that we think now about the rights of human beings both on gender but also on race and, and many other issues and you know in some ways you look at what uh, rbg did and you're like that is just phenomenal that one woman uh, could 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 lead such an amazing amount of change and has had overcome so much uh, but yet in some ways like i feel like uh, i echo some of what dr is saying in that it's gone underground and in some ways, it's harder to recognize, and we still find ourselves dealing, grappling with those issues. Uh, you know, in twenty twenty, uh, you know, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, is again uh, tangential to this. But I think again, emblematic of the fact that you know the work is not done, and for us to just sort of think, well, you know, because a couple of laws have, you know, because these laws have been passed, and now overtly that can't be done, that 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 these things are not happening. Um, I think is just a bit fanciful, um, but you know, to me, w- one of the things that uh, my wife and I watched it, and one of the things that that struck me about watching R B G is just, by all accounts, she was an extremely introspective, uh, or or I should say, in, introverted kind of person, not one to sort of make a name for herself. But suddenly, she would come out in court, and like her quotes in the documentary, in, in terms of what she said in in court, were just phenomenal. And it's it just so courageous. And uh, and to me, more than anything, I was inspired by her, just her courage and uh, her clear dedication. I mean, the stories about her staying up, uh, you know, taking care of her children, taking care of her uh, uh, sick husband, going up till two in the morning and then starting again is just inspirational. But I would echo what Dr. R is saying that many of those issues that she she worked and struggled against. Those are not uh, issues that are dealt with and sorted. Rebecca,
0: I think your comment's a good one. And we've also heard,
3: to piggyback on, on Amir's thoughts,
0: a lot of the same commentary and concern with occult um, uh, inequity in um, you know be, beyond uh, the male-female or the, the gender issue and, and well into the racial issue as well. And, you know, whether it's Dave Chappelle, most notably, but in eloquently, but certainly many, many others have made the same comment that that you've made, which is that it's a lot easier potentially to deal with and fight when it's out in the open. When it's not, um, it's it's hard to quantify and it's hard to address.
1: I think that's a, a really good point. And I wonder, you know, I, I uh, looking into RBG a bit more, I find one of the most interesting things about her is actually some of the notable things that she said about things moving too quickly. So for example, um, I think, I'm not sure if it's actually in the documentary or or in another source, but with respect to Roe v. Wade, she famously came out and said she agreed with the decision, uh, but she felt like maybe the steps should have been a bit smaller. And in other areas, she had said, similar things that she was really about sort of methodically tackling one part of the problem at a time, which uh, not being a lawyer myself, seems like something that it kind of fits with the profession of law. I wonder what you guys think about the concept of dealing with some of those less overt, smaller, one step at a time type of things that you see happening and i'm going to come back to you rebecca cuz you brought it up first to start but but i would be good to have everybody's opinion
2: yeah i mean um i i think i think that point makes a lot of sense in a way that um you know if you if you have a huge uh you know change but the culture hasn't changed along with it um then uh, then then there's Uh, potential for increased tension and almost increased uh, uh, maybe potentially resentment towards uh, whether it's a a minority or a visible minority or whether it's a you know female Um, so I think that I can see that on the other hand you know I I wouldn't want to stop progress uh, because you know we aren't quite ready for that change so I don't know what the what the right um balance of that is I certainly see at least in surgery uh, such a dramatic change in my career um, and that may be partly uh, where I trained and, and uh, where I now work but you know when I was a resident I was one of two female residents in a program of about 25 people with no general surgery female attendings and I was the first female attending in general surgery and, and the first woman in the department I uh, no, the second woman in the department to have a, a baby. So there were some you know significant culture changes there and um but i think that uh once you know that sort of happened then many other um we've had many other new female recruits and our program is is you know very balanced in terms of gender and that's um you know a very uh a positive change i think uh well i know it's a positive change um yeah
1: it uh, it's incredible the amount of Female trainees that have come through and come up in the, even the last 20 years, Chad, were there any uh, females in your residency class?
0: Yeah, you bet. Um, there certainly was. You, you know, maybe my experience was a, was a similar or, or different. I'm not sure, but I really had the benefit very, very early of really strong female leadership uh, examples. And you know, and coming to Calgary. In 2001, uh, as a resident, and and I think 97 was the first time I was here as a medical student, Um, you know, Janice Pasika was here, who you guys know we've had on the podcast, and my understanding is that she still, it was the youngest, or remains the youngest um, uh, section head in the history of this country, and you can see why she got that role. I mean, for Everything people say or don't say about her, she is an incredible leader. She's organized. She's a wonderful example. And then, at the other end of my training, I end up in a fellowship in the U.S. with Grace Riziki, who again we've also had the, on the podcast, and and another you know tremendous example of of leadership and and equity in in every way you could ever define it. I think part of maybe part of that question that you're asking, Kelly, is about methodology. In other words, how, how do individuals um, prompt, promote, ensure durable change over time for the better. And, and I I don't know, you know, I've kind of tried to put a lot of thought into it. The methodology that you see RBG use, as you point out, is linear, sequential, quiet, for the most part, well thought out. Um, and then there's the opposite of that spectrum, you know, especially in 2020 with, Uh, social media intensity and I'm not sure where the where the best uh, route would lie it's probably not for me to make that kind of comment but uh, we probably need a a range of voices we probably need people to speak in a way that they're uh, best able to affect change but I do agree with you that her methodology although maybe is considered old school by today's standards is probably what allows her to reach across the aisle to You know her best friend is as you mentioned who's on the farthest right that you could be possibly be from her left um and 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 have her be well received and and considered thoughtful as opposed to um not so thoughtful so yeah i don't know um the the methodology is interesting to consider though for sure
2: Mm -hmm. kelly one one comment i would want to make in that is what one of the statements she made in the documentary which i i really hung on to and loved was she said you know she was raised to always be a lady and um then she kind of explains a lady is someone who you know is uh that doesn't let emotions govern their actions and uh you know thinks you know logically and uh with um with respect for others and I think she sort of goes on to define it but um you know it's it's such a Funny contrast because of course if someone told me to behave like a lady and I'm I know certainly my parents said things like that when I was little um you know that would be very off-putting now and yet what she what she meant is um you know is that you, you know you have to and this is obviously was her approach that you know you have to meet people on their level with respect and and openness to listen to their points of view um but then through you know rational discourse and uh and arguments rather than emotion, try and and try and make the case, and that's certainly exactly what she did. Um, I just thought it's kind of funny that she defined that as being a lady.
1: I love that too, and that was literally the next thing I was going to say. So you're reading my mind, and I think it's incredible that you know, and to take it one step further, her comments about not raising your voice and that being the way to win an argument and to get people on your side, it. Um, I don't know if it was ahead of her time, but it certainly, I think, resonates with me as something that is a very meaningful way to move your agenda or a larger agenda forward. I wonder, um, when I think about some other prominent female leaders, I see that a lot. And this idea that a feminist is someone who isn't ladylike, I think probably isn't accurate in all of the icons that we see. Um, I don't know if anybody else has other kind of women they want to compare to or ideas that they see in that same vein, uh, you brought up two in, in surgery, um, being Dr. Basica and Dr. Rosicki. Are there others? I think of Beyonce in that particular vein, but I'd open it up to anybody else to share.
0: You you know, what's amazing. And I, I, I say, maybe make these comments at my own peril, but, um, you know, I throw Barbara Streisand in there and she comes to mind because she was recently on a a superb podcast through New York City Public Radio, the Alec Baldwin uh, host called Here's the Thing. And she was talking about her experience with making the movie of Yentl. And I sort of think of her as an elegant, artistic, obviously, incredibly talented, very thoughtful, but somewhat eccentric individual. And she talked about making that movie in England, which I, I think went on to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, but I, I could be wrong. Um, and she talked about making movies in England versus making them in America, and how much better and easier and just more amazing the experience was in England, because they treated her as a woman director with all the respect and equality in the world to men. And so Baldwin asked her, why did she think that was? And she said, well, England has this incredible history, obviously, of strong women. She's like, start with the Queen, move on to Margaret Thatcher. And she went through this wonderful list. And I thought, isn't that interesting? And then she said, after that movie was filmed, sorry, or shot, it came out and got all this, uh, you know, obviously, incredible uh, rave review. She won a, an award, uh, a Women in Film Award back in America. And she said she spent the majority of her, which I've since looked up and watched, the majority of her um, acceptance speech talking about the friction that, as a woman, she not only received from men in her business within America, but also in particular from women colleagues and other women in Hollywood in general. Sort of a, a, a negative spin on it and how, from her point of view, that had to stop and we should be promoting each other and helping each other like they do in England. And I, I sort of just thought, number one, she, she kind of leads and, and she's very interesting in, in sort of that RBG style. But the story in particular, I thought was, was applicable and, and made me think back to the RBG documentary as well.
3: So one thing I, I wanted to to actually ask both Dr. R and Dr. Vote is something that I've often struggled with and it's is related to what Dr. Ball was just bringing out, uh, bringing up about Barbara Streisand. And this is the whole, the, the idea of how you think about yourself in terms of when when things don't go well for you, um, and and perhaps for example it is because you know your skin's a different color or you have a different chromosome uh, than your colleagues, and when things don't go well, it, you know one one of the things that someone told me when I was growing up is that if you start thinking of yourself that you know the the what happened to me or. Uh, any failures in your life is because people are being racist. For example, that's a very dangerous slope to go down, and and that you sort of develop this victim mentality. Um, and while it's a, it's very important to think about um, you know on a on a societal level or at a at a you know at a at a policy level or at a community or an institutional level, it's very important to think about how people are being marginalized or. Uh, not being treated fairly, but when you when it comes to your individual um, success or failures, uh, that you really have to try to just be the best that you can be, um, and not think about those other factors that might be um, impacting you. And I I have struggled with that thought. And you know when when you hear Barbara Streisand talking about wanting to be accepted, not because she was a quote unquote female director, but because she was just a good director i think that's sort of on a, a similar sort of vein so i'm i'm curious uh dr our how you know you were one of two female residents in your program how did you deal with that thought that maybe maybe i'm being treated differently because i'm a woman did, do you think that may, you know that's not a big deal and you should just recognize it as it is and deal with it or or how did you sort of navigate that um thought or that problem when it came up
2: Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, I didn't feel as much of a gender issue, even as a resident, as I as I have, particularly as a new attending staff. I'm not new anymore, but I'm talking about when I was new. I felt that's where I felt the biggest um, sort of uh, element of, of, you know, gender. I don't know if you want to call it discrimination, but that, that I was treated a bit differently. I think as a resident, you know... I certainly noticed that I was, you know, I mean, all you, all anyone had to say was the surgical resident came by, and it was a woman, and everyone knew who it was because there was so, you know, few. Um, so I think that that uh, uh, it, it was obvious that I was, you know, not the same as my peers. But um, I, I certainly found my peers were quite accepting, and um, I mean, I worked very hard, and we all did. Um, but I would be the first person to you know, take someone's call. And, you know, I I certainly went um, the extra mile for my my resident colleagues. And I don't think because I was a woman, I think that that was an important thing for me. Um, And I had really good co-residents. So for me, that wasn't as much of an issue. I noticed it most. And I'll be interested to hear what Kelly has to say when I became an attending and and the only female attending in uh, in the um, division. um, And there were you know very obvious times where again it was i would say obvious but a little bit insidious too for for example just as an anecdote uh, i was uh operating all night uh on call on covering the acs service and then the following morning booked an appendix at 8 a.m and the anesthesiologist refused to put the patient to sleep because i'd been up all night and i would be too tired to do an appendix and in the history. Of the Division of General Surgery at the Ottawa Hospital, I had never known that to happen to anybody else. And it's hard for me to believe that it had nothing to do with my gender or that I looked young, for example. And, you know, uh, I had to call the chief of surgery, and the chief of surgery had to call the chief of anesthesia in order to allow the case to go ahead. And, and so a little bit what I mean by that being insidious, I brought up gender in that case, because it was clear to me that that was what was going on. But then all of a sudden I'm making it about gender. But if it wasn't about gender, what was it about? You know. Um, and then there was, you know, m- many examples that are quite similar to that. Um, and then the other thing I think for women uh, who choose to have children for female physicians or anyone really? It's very public when you have a child because you can't really hide it if you if you you know have it yourself, and so then that becomes a an opportunity for everyone to comment on the choices that you're making in a way that we don't comment to men. We may not even necessarily know that a man is is the father of a newborn. Um, so things like that were really much more obvious to me for some reason as a as a new attending. I felt that I was treated quite differently. Um, and then there were times when I wondered, like, am I making this about gender and it's not? And, and I don't know. It, it's possible that I was and, and it wasn't about gender, but it, it certainly seemed to be. So I don't know, Kelly, if you have similar experiences, that would be interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I definitely agree with um, a lot of what you said. So going through residency I really never thought about my gender and and I know as I said at the beginning some of that is the privilege of starting residency in 2007 so I know that there was obviously a lot that came before that my residency class was actually predominantly female we had one male and um, and five or six depending on what year it was females so there was a lot of us around um, and really whether it was western or the time or our group I'm not sure but really never thought about my gender. And interestingly, in preparation for this discussion today, all of my partners that are in the same hallway as me at work are people that trained me. And I actually asked them all, did they think about my gender when I was training? And the universal answer was no. So That was an interesting experience. But similar to you, I really started to notice that I was a different gender than my colleagues After I came on staff and for me more specifically than when I came back on staff was actually very much related to your last point, which was when I got married and got pregnant. And for me, that was a huge shift probably in part because it was visible, as you said, and also because that was a new sort of aspect to my relationship and my own views of myself changed. I really noticed The differences between what females who bear children as one example encounter in the workforce and for the first time i personally felt that the thing that i always did to subconsciously counteract any gender bias which was really to just be good at my job was harder for me to do because i not only had a job At the hospital, I also had a really important job at home and continue to have that really important job at home. And I think, you know, bringing it back to RBG, her comments that she was a better mom and a better lawyer because she did both of those things. I see that in myself, but it's hard to get to. Chad, I wonder, you've obviously worked with a lot of people who have kind of had that transition. (laughs) Do you see the same type of thing amongst others? Have you seen that in your career?
0: In, in terms of the negative side of that, or the positive side of that, or just Both. the challenge of
1: it? Both.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. I think you know, it's again. I don't as a as a middle aged white male, I don't necessarily know what's my job or I should be commenting on it. Listening to you guys, I should probably just be quiet and listen and. And uh, and I, I respect your, your experiences and they make intuitive sense to me. And it's also somewhat, um, I don't know what the word would be to be honest with you, but it, it makes me a bit sad that, that there's any negativity surrounding, for example, having a, a, a little one. Um, that You're right, Rebecca, I mean the physicality and Kelly, the physicality of trying to hide not hide, but the physicality of having a baby is very different for a male. But, you know, there's also more and more examples, I think, of of single fathers or divorced fathers who provide um, the predominant caregiver activities, and not to switch the narrative of, the, of our conversation, but I, I did wonder, and I, to be honest, I was asked by a very well-known, very articulate and bright female that that a lot of us know Um sort of what, what I thought of RBG's husband and what I thought of their relationship and in particular, do you think RBG is RBG without her husband? And I was sort of thought to myself, that's a very interesting question because my sense of that of her life based on that movie and then also the um the the non-documentary movie about her, I'm forgetting the name of it, but is that her her husband, despite being what sounds like the tax lawyer in New York city did an incredible amount of work with that family during the week and the kids in particular. And I almost got the sense in the documentary that her kids didn't really, um, they seemed to maybe it was just the way it was filmed and the, in the snippets, but they seemed to like dad over mom. And there almost seemed to be some resentment in some of their comments there. And, and I don't know if that's true or not. It probably doesn't matter. But it was clear to me that his support for that family, and particularly for RBG's career—you know, the story of her, of, of, of her even being considered for the high court—and and his his support of that and his lobbying for that amongst some very powerful people—I um, just thought it was an interesting question, you know. So there, I think there is, in to some extent, uh, an increasing male narrative um, uh, as as well when it comes to kids in particular.
1: I found it so interesting um, talking about him that that he was you know, the tax lawyer and that it, I think in a lot of ways they work hard to sort of say he had an important role too. I remember uh, my first year of medical school, there was a really prominent lecturer, male surgeon, uh, who came to talk to us and before he started his lecture, he, by way of sharing his worldly wisdom with us said, To our class, which by the way was fifty percent female, the key to success in medicine is to have a wife at home who manages things. And not joking, he was not wow right. Crazy, but and I remember being like so offended by that concept that you know how could you possibly not be talking to fifty percent of us? But as I get older, I do see some not the the sex is part of that but the concept of needing some balance in your life to be able to perform at such a high level to be able to be efficient to be able to be effective you have to have that support and whether that means that it's someone who is at home literally cooking the meals and taking care of the kids or someone who can provide you the emotional support who can provide you whatever it is you need at that particular moment in time and it sounds like marty did that for her Rebecca, I think you were about to say something, and I cut you off.
2: <laughs> oh no, no, not. I was just. Um, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, whether it's um, a, a woman supporting a man or a man supporting a woman, or at different times in the relationship and different times in each other's careers, you you uh, do that differently. I think I think it is pretty key to success for for either gender. I I, w- I wanted to clarify my comment about being pregnant. Partly was that. Um, because it's so visible and because people know they can date stamp your children by when they remember you were pregnant and how many times you were pregnant. I remember someone saying to me once, like, have you been pregnant for like five years? You know, because you're just constantly like,
0: Oh my God. I I
2: totally get it. (laughs) But, uh, but I think that the thing is like, and, and again, uh, just another anecdote of, um, you know, having the, uh, the COO, uh, um, the former CEO of our, our research um, uh, institute, you know, uh, stopping me in a parking lot and saying, you know, your name's come up for this leadership position a couple of times, but, you know, I just thought I'd talk to you about it because, you know, you, you just had a baby and um, I just, I figured that you'd be too busy. And, you know, and he was this is a wonderful man and I have a lot of respect for and he didn't mean it in any other way, than you're probably really tired cause you just had your third baby. But my point is that as if I was a man, no one would know when I had my last baby. And um, and so they wouldn't, it would never even occur to them. So I think, you know, as much as, and I'll be, I'll be quite honest, there's many opportunities I've had probably because I checked the box of woman. And so being asked to be on certain committees and, you know, membership panels and stuff that I can, guarantee i wouldn't have been asked to be on if, if i didn't check that box and so i've been i've benefited greatly but i think there are some other boxes that you don't get there are some times when you don't get tapped on the shoulder because of the assumption that um, that you'd be putting your family first and and oftentimes that assumption is right but it's it's a not it's like the decision is somewhat taken away from you um, I, I also remember for instance my chief of surgery who's again, a wonderful man and, and supported me. Um, but, uh, him saying to me, you know, Rebecca, like you're, you're, working so hard. Why don't you just relax a bit and have some children, maybe just do breast surgery. You know, this is my, you know, three-year annual <laughs> review. Um, no, nothing, no mal, uh, intent there whatsoever. Just, uh, just a friendly, you know, um, older man looking at a younger woman and saying, you know, I think your life could be a lot easier if you stop trying so hard. Um, So, you know, those, those are the kinds of experiences because it's just so public when you have a family because you can't, you can't not, you can't hide it. Um, Well, I think lots of male, young male surgeons have the same challenges that young female surgeons have. They're many are equal partners to their wives and and with child care but um but no one necessarily knows
1: absolutely you make an excellent point and and i mean just to dovetail off that a little bit uh in some of my leadership positions it's been very blatant you know you you are qualified for this but it's also very important that you're female because you round out our leadership team because of that which uh you know at first was very offensive to me. And then I just realized it's a way to get my foot in the door and, and I can demonstrate to them that I am worthy of those positions, but it's a, it's an incredible place to be. I
3: I just wanted to also say like the same thing kind of struck me watching, watching it with my wife was that how, how I was so impressed by uh, the way Marty Ginsburg really just knew how to support uh, RBG. And in particular, there's this moment at least in the documentary, I don't know how accurate this is, but in the in the, in the documentary where he, um, where they sort of talk about like how she she wouldn't have necessarily been the top runner for Bill Clinton to nominate to the Supreme Court, but that he basically pulled out all the stops, talked to all of his contacts, and got her there because he really believed believed in her, and so that really kind of you know and, I'll, and in full disclosure, my my wife has uh, even though she did. Um, engineering and did engineering physics and is much infinitely smarter than I am really put her career on the back burner so that I could do residency and now fellowship and so it it made me really wonder um, how I can be more supportive and uh, really try to elevate my female colleagues but you know it does make me worried to hear you both talk about sort of someone coming up to you and saying. Um, oh we tapped you for this because you're, yeah you're good but you're also female and so uh, you know there is some it is not always clear necessarily how to support each other um, and and make life better for our female colleagues or or for uh, our colleagues that are underrepresented and perhaps minorities are discriminated in other ways and so you know that's one thing that I I still find myself thinking a lot about and thinking about uh, how we can support each other all better uh, the way sort of Marty Ginsburg did for RBG.
1: I think that's a huge start. I mean, really, you know, having the conversations and being willing to look a bit more introspectively about it, I I think is where you start. And I think that actually kind of brings us to sort of a nice point that um, we can maybe wrap up with. And I think uh, just to ground everybody a little bit, you know, we're recording this uh, in November and in the last 10 days or week, we've had two incredible female firsts uh, in the world. The first female vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, and the first uh, executive or manager of Major League Baseball, Kimberly Ng. And it's an incredible time in our universe. and and. RBG often said that her mother, who she says was as brilliant or more brilliant than she was. The only thing that separated her mother from doing what she did, what RBG did, was a generation. We're all parents on this call. And I think the last thing I'm hoping to get from everybody is, what is it that you want for your kids, one generation behind you, with respect to equity, how do you see the future for our children? Rebecca?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question, because I, you know, I've had so many interesting talks with my kids, and um, they don't, uh, they don't see gender, really. um, And they don't see race. uh, At that, I mean, even up to 11, it's not really something they've ever considered. It's certainly not something that, um, they, you know, they think of as as being different in terms of equity, which I've always thought of as a good thing. But when a lot of this um, Black Lives Matter stuff came out, there was uh, so much commentary about how, you know, being blind to gender, blind to um, diversity is actually not the right thing, because you have to recognize it sort of to address it and change it. So, I think before that, I would have said like I want them to not see to not see gender and to not see race, um, and I guess I still want that, but I want them to not see it in a world where it actually truly doesn't matter. Um, it would be wonderful if, when they're adults, that was true, but if it's not, then I want I would want them to be um, very proactive about uh, you know recognizing um, the, the differences and and maybe knowing or or being open minded to try and understand how best to support others. Whether it's uh I, I'm the mother of three boys, so whether it's um, you know, women or whether it's uh, other um ethnicities and other races, you know, first of all seeing people. Um, but second of all, um, if there is inequal inequalities that exist, uh, recognizing them and I guess working uh, as much as possible to try and uh
0: equalize them yeah I don't think I can top Re- Re- Rebecca's uh, uh summary I think that's beautifully eloquent and and I would agree uh you know in my life and with my kids uh, a thousand percent um you know I I don't want to devolve or 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 move into the debate between equity of opportunity and equity of outcome but the the, the truth is at least from my point of view, again, uh, as, a, as a requisite middle-aged white male who has three kids, who's raising them uh, as a single dad um, and who very much, uh, you know, they lack the same um, uh, intuitive or, or maybe baseline view of race and gender um, differences. Uh, having said all of those caveats, I want them to have equity of opportunity. I want them to be able to do whatever their talents allow them to do and to um, think n- nothing otherwise. Having said that, you know, as you point out, the two great examples being Camilla Harris and, and Kim Ng, we've had very long conversations in the past week about both of those and I think my messaging, again, to my, my kids, including my son, has been just work really hard, recognize what's around you, and you can be anything, anything that you want. And, you know, I think perhaps due to my ignorance a little bit about Kamala Harris, my knowledge or, or depth of knowledge about Kim Ng is, is, is a lot more. I mean, there's a person that, independent of, of gender, deserved, and I rarely in my life use that word deserve, but she deserved that job. She's been in pro baseball for about 25 years. She was the assistant GM for the New York Yankees. Steinbrenner used to send her to the GM meeting when he was upset with his GM, who doesn't matter what his name is, but he, he would keep him back in New York and she's continuously been described as the smartest person in the room through all those meetings. She's worked for the league. Like it was about time she was given that opportunity and baseball in particular is such a cerebral drafting process and and numbers based game it's not like you needed to play that game heaven forbid that old argument to be an incredible manager of it so I'm really excited to see how she does and and we talked to my kids and I a lot about that, that example in particular and it was interesting at the end of it they sort of looked at me and their summary sentences were essentially well, of course, like that's, that's clear to us, man. Like, what are you kind of talking about? So either that was my, my poor communication or hopefully that the world has come a long way for them.
1: I hope it's the latter. <laughs> I agree. Amir, what do you think?
3: Oh man, I have to, I don't, I don't really like being put in the position of having to follow all those those wonderful comments. And um, I, I would just say that I, I hope that we can as a society continue to, Work on these issues and and not really uh, lose hope just because you know we thought that um, you know if we could pass some laws or you know that uh, that that these issues are all going to go away and and that uh, I, I do am very hopeful that um, that the world is going to continue to get uh, better and become a, a better place. Um, you know, one thing that I'll just uh, um, highlight again is just uh, the fact that rbg became an icon in sort of the social media world and among really young people in in her 80s uh, to me is just um really uh, heartening and uh, exciting and I, I just hope that we can continue to work on these issues collectively and individually and uh and continue to grow and, and get better You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.